Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host, Edmar Ferreira, will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Ryan McClinko, Chief Technology Officer and Co-Founder of Astronis Space Technologies which designs, builds, and operates smaller, lower-cost geostationary communication satellites to connect unconnected people anywhere in the world. Hello, welcome to the Deep Tech Show. I'm here with Ryan from Astronis, real space company, creating new form of satellites to, to be an internet for all of us. Ryan, please take us to the future and explain a little bit how the future looks like when you guys are really successful. Hey, good to talk to everybody, and thanks for having me on the show. I'm Ryan McClinko, co-founder and CTO of Astronis, and what we're doing is building the next generation of geostationary telecommunication systems. And what that looks like zooming out into the future is doing exactly that of building newer and better geostationary telecom systems to bring the rest of the world online. You know, the mission and the goal for what we're going for right now and what will what this will look like in the future is that Everybody everywhere has the ability to get the same sort of connection that many of us have um, and that people who are, whether they're underconnected or not connected at all, are able to access the internet and all of the other great things that, that come with that, including getting access to podcasts such as this. And yeah, really all the things are around, around all of that and, you know, maybe even connecting beyond the earth to other places as well. And how did you start the origin story here? Like, how one like wake up someday and decided to tackle such a big hard problem like that? Sure, yeah, I guess going into a little bit on on my background and my co-founders is similar. Is my background has all been basically space or aerospace type stuff. A couple aerospace degrees from MIT in aerospace engineering. Did um, all my internships were all space related at SpaceX at ULA. Then coming out of school, I worked on Dream Chaser, did flight control systems for for that vehicle. Then went to Planet and did much smaller spacecraft for their remote sensing systems. So, and then, sorry to interrupt you, but earlier, like, why did you decide to go into the space in the first place? Uh, like into the industry in the first place? I think. Yeah. Like you seem to be a space guy through and through. Why you decided to start in that area? Sure. I think it was just honestly. Mostly that it was interesting and challenging and seemed like the next sort of big step that was important also on, you know, there's all these benefits that you can get from space and it's sort of the next place that that we should be going and moving on to and, you know, uh, having human presence in other places as well. And, you know, what can I do to best enable that has, I think, driven, you know, a lot of what my choices have been in terms of yeah. what I wanted to focus on, you know, in college or what, what jobs I wanted to do or things like that. And if you didn't end up like working on the space industry, what other industry do you think you would have worked on? Good question. There's, there's a lot of other interesting, I would say, integrated tech out there. I would say some of the things that I've found to be pretty interesting are a lot of the biomedical stuff in terms of yeah. sort of improvements can we do in, to, to leverage technology in order to make lives better, in order to extend lives, in order to do all sorts of things like that. I think that's one of the other sort of areas that I found very intriguing. A lot of sort of, I guess on a similar note, you know, a lot of sort of virtual things 
you know, virtual augmented reality type stuff are all pretty interesting as well. A couple of things that come to mind. And one thing that I noticed, like every time I think that I have interviewed like three, three people from the space industry in the podcast already. And one thing I noticed when I talk from the industry, it's everybody seems to be so mission driven or like really like focused and on that mission. And it seems that no one goes into the space sector without really wanting to join in that specific area. This is like, this is a feeling that you have as well, like with all the people that you know in the field, that's like, it tends to attract this type of talent or it's just like a few of them. Like, tell me a little bit more about how the field, this type of feeling is in the field. Yeah, I think it is pretty, it is very prevalent. And I think that's probably just due to the fact that, you know, it's more challenging. And that means you're going to run into a lot of difficulties along the way and a lot of things that you need to overcome. And the best way that you can overcome significant difficulties is, you know, motivation and a strong mission for that. And, you know, we we certainly have that as Stronis and a lot of other companies doing doing difficult things, space or otherwise, certainly have that as well. Yeah, I think that every time I think about that, I think there's so many easiest way to make money, right? <laughs> Besides doing that, like there's easiest way. So it's just not the money. That's the challenge as well. So in, in this whole like space thing, like why going into satellites? Like what's the story there? Like how did, did you do ended up in that area? Yeah. You know, I mentioned some of the history back on different companies I'd worked for. If you look into those companies, you'll notice a monotonic decrease in company size that the companies were when I started. You're just sort of more interested in seeing, you know, really things from scratch and seeing more responsibility and learning opportunity to be able to sort of see more and learn and do more and more on that. And so the kind of inevitable direction for that for me personally was to go start, you know, my own company. And, you know, I had been talking with various different people and essentially I'd been talking with with John Gedmark, my co-founder. And we realized that we both had similar interests in that. And, you know, we were both interested in space things. And so we wanted to do something that that related to space. And given that as sort of a, as a constraint, we actually very quickly and naturally came to this particular idea. And the reason for that was at the time, you know, in 2015, there were a lot of companies that were building smaller remote, smaller remote sensing systems including my current employer, Planet, at the time. and But all of the money, all of the impact, all of the a lot of that in space has traditionally been telecoms. And so can we do these smaller, smaller systems with telecommunications? And that just wasn't being done at the time and certainly wasn't being done from geostationary. Just sort of, when was that? Around like... 2015. 2015. And so around that time, and so... You know, there are good reasons why that hadn't been done thus far. You know, it is harder, especially to be going to geostationary orbit. But we could build on all this great work that's been done by many people. And all that great stuff, what I mean, is really a combination of some of its tech, some of its just talent. You know, a lot more companies doing a lot more things enables a lot more capable people that know this. And not only people from traditional organizations like Boeing or Lockheed or whatever that know things, but also people from you know, SpaceX and all of these new startups and stuff like that, you know, know these things, but also doing it in a faster, more flexible way. And then in addition to that was that the funding dynamic just changed dramatically. And that historically, a lot of the funding had been for, you know, SaaS type things, whereas as there got to be more and more interest in that, 
a lot of those areas tended to become fairly saturated. And then a lot of investors started looking at other opportunities. And that's where they started looking into a lot of hardware, a lot of hard tech and things like that, where they're like, oh, okay, well, we can go to this. It is riskier. The payout is going to be longer, but the payout can be higher when they hit. And there became a lot more interest in that, which was a huge enablement for companies like us. Yeah, yeah. I see that. The, I mean, in the last like seven, eight years, there's a steep growth in like deep tech investments. For sure. it's, I think it's a lot of the capital is moving in there. Right? It's definitely riskier, but the payoff, it's, it's potentially higher, not only in terms of, I think, in terms of the money return, but in terms of the impact, actually. The impact that you can have in the world, I think, that people are starting to tune in into that particularly the second generation of VCs and founders who made some money in like Web2 and now had all this money that what they're going to do with this money. Like, <laughs> so I'll call this, 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 this second generation of rich geeks going to invest a lot in biotech and space and VR and things like that because now they, they own the money and it's the kind of world they want to build. So it's going to be an interesting future we're going to live in. So when we talk about like areas that don't have like access, like we were talking earlier, like what type of areas like we are talking about? Like it's mountain areas. It's like what type of areas on earth right now are not connected? Yeah, those are great examples of them. So you're talking, yeah, relatively difficult terrain. So mountains is certainly a big part, but even plains and areas like that where it's just like low population density, certain, certainly areas that have islands or many islands or lots of rivers or things like that can also be. And a great example of that is, you know, one of our upcoming customers in their next block of spacecraft is Andesat and, and Peru has a lot of very interesting terrain. Yeah. And that's been a huge cause as to why there's a lot of lack of connectivity there. And the same is very much true for Alaska for our first customer where, you know, a decent amount of it is, well, I guess a decent amount is pretty mountainous, but a lot of it is just remote. And so it's very difficult to be able to justify the cost of being able to run stuff out to many of these different places. What's actually interesting is that, you know, we look at all these different other places, but even in the continental United States, there's a huge amount of area that is underserved, whether that's in the, you know, Rocky Mountains here or even out in the plains or other places where it's just lower population density. You know, I would say the things that you yeah. mentioned at the beginning are really some of the most paramount places that are poorly connected, but Really, anywhere that's outside of, um, you know, population-dense metropolitan areas or the nearby surroundings tend to not be all that greatly connected. Yeah, I think that there was like Elon Musk was, I'm Brazilian, so Elon Musk was in Brazil like a couple of weeks ago, like closing like a contract with the government because the country is big and there's so, in some parts, is really sparse areas. So there's a lot of kids that don't have access to internet at all. Even in the school, because it's so distant and sparse that you don't have the traditional cable companies and things like that. So like countries that are so sparse and big tend to have this problem as well. Like regarding like type of speed are you talking about? Like to the type of speed of connection we can get with a technology like that? Yeah, honestly, that depends on the service agreement that you have with. Yeah, you know, we have certain enterprise customers that, you know, I guess maybe backing up here, 
is we essentially sell to local internet service providers and lease bandwidth in the aggregate to them. And then what that means kind of selling out to the end users depends largely on how much that multiplexes. And, you know, maybe that multiplexes the uncontested data at a premium to enterprise customers, or maybe that multiplexes out at a very high contention ratio, lower speeds to, to you know, a large number of people. And Yeah, but there's, there's like a, a limit, like an upper limit on that. Like, how would it compare to, let's say, 4G or 5G? That is a great question. I honestly don't have a great feel for what the speeds on 4G looks like yeah. and how that would compare. But depending on the use case, I think, you know, the expectation is that this is providing, you know, broadband services. I think in a lot of use cases, it can be similar or potentially better, but, but it does depend on kind of a lot of the particulars. Yeah. And like your like target market would be like the local internet provider that would have like a share time or on a satellite that you would be launching or would be to launch specific satellites for each customer? Like how does that work in a model? Yeah, it's actually a mix. So right now we're essentially leasing these satellites out for dedicated customers. That's what we've done thus far. However, going forward with more time, there are many potential customers of these local ISPs that don't need a full spacecraft's worth of bandwidth, especially as we continue to improve our spacecraft and have more and more bandwidth per spacecraft. And you know, as we go forward in time, we very much expect to be putting up spacecraft and leasing out different parts of them. And this is actually a huge part to the Astronus business model is that traditionally you have these gigantic kind of school bus sized spacecraft that cost many hundreds of millions of dollars to build and more hundreds of millions of dollars to launch. And so it it's kind of tricky to necessarily work out the business model to work for more than a certain number of potential use cases, not to mention the huge amount of time that it takes to build them and customize them and all of that. Whereas we're doing essentially the opposite strategy, which is to mass produce these things, have them be as similar as possible and have them be less expensive each. And for us to be able to get to the point eventually where we can build and make many of them and have them be similar enough to each other that we could start, you know, either having them on the ground ready to go, or even putting some in orbit. And then somebody's like, oh, I need capacity. Great. We move it over here and provide that. And so with the traditional model, that sort of thing is fiscally impossible. But, you know, that's what we're going to for us. How cheaper it's one of your smaller satellites compared to the standard? And in terms of bandwidth, like, do you have a fill-off percentage-wise how smaller it is compared to the big ones? Like, Yeah, probably shouldn't go into too much in terms of numbers for that sort of thing, but we're generally talking about, you know, these systems being of quanta that are order of magnitude smaller than oh. what these traditional spacecraft are. Yeah, so, this is really small, yeah, compared to, like, this is a big improvement. Exactly. So we can provide systems that, and that's important for especially a lot of these initial customers that we're talking to, because a lot of them have needs that that are that don't justify a big system, and so that's a great entry point for us as a company is you know servicing those sort of needs. And then over time, when they need more, then we can provide more and provide sort of more of those chunks. And then eventually, and especially as we scale up and build more of them, then our unit economics improve further. Yeah, because like if instead of like having like a big chunk, you have you can cut it up, you can like serve it like in increments instead of just like. If the increment is smaller, 
you have like a range of growth to do. It's really smart. Regarding to sending it to space, usually it's how it's the price is like it's by weight, it's by size, and how this the fact that there are smaller impact that like it's shared between a lot of the big payload, you can share a little bit of space. How does it work? Yeah, I would say traditionally it's by mass, although there's some flexibility around that, but we'll say it's primarily around mass. Now, one of the key enablers, in addition to you know not having to book a whole rocket, for us as riding as a secondary payload, is the flexibility in getting a launch. So the neat thing is that there are some improvements that, that the traditional commercial spacecraft have made, which has resulted in them being a little bit lighter. One of the biggest is batteries. Battery technology has evolved a lot in the past, I don't know, 40 years when a lot of these things started being made. And that has resulted in weight reductions when they have finally moved to slightly better batteries. And what that means is that there's generally extra mass, extra lift capacity on these rockets. And so what you can do is you can put a ring that's below the primary payload that you can attach these secondary payloads to. And since most of these rockets have extra lift capacity, that means that there's a large fraction of rockets that are going up that we could go and ride on and basically ride as that secondary, which provides a really big opportunity for us for launch accessibility to be able to get us to space. And additionally to that is that, you know, a lot of spacecraft go to geostationary or geostationary transfer orbit. And actually not many ride as secondaries, which sort of puts us in a really good position for that. In general, you book the whole package with your customers, like, and you go after the rockets for payload, or you just deliver the satellites and they go on to find a place to do? No, so we take care of that. So, yeah, that's actually a very important distinction, is that traditionally in the satellite telecommunications industry, you'd have a manufacturer build a satellite, sell it to a satellite operator, and, you know, for example, you'd have, say, Boeing build a satellite, sell it to, say, Intelsat, and then they would, A, do all the financing involved with that because, you know, you've got four or five years from when you start this program to when you're starting to make money and then another few years before it pays out on your principal. And so they do the financing, they go book the launch, they get the insurance, they get the orbital rights, they do all of that. Now, there are reasons, mostly historical and inertia-based, as to why those need to be separate companies. But if we're starting from the start and we're dealing with these smaller quanta spacecraft, then it's very possible for us to be able to do all of that. And it's more than possible, it's very desirable because that means that we, or the people who are here physically designing a circuit board that goes onto the spacecraft are very closely connected to the people who are talking to the end user customers. And so we get to feedback knowledge and roll that back in rather than having to have weird intra-company dynamics that that work all of that. Furthermore, just the efficiencies of that that go into cost and go into all of that by by having that all vertically integrated together. Yeah, so, yeah. Not only, so we go and, not only efficiency, but I imagine from the point of view of the customer. It's like you're taking like the whole chunk of the problem from their shoulders, like say, like just, I want to be able to provide broadband to that region. Could you please help me? I don't want to exactly. be a specialized and I don't want to, not my speciality to worry about the launch and the payload and the security of it and all these things. Just please let me be in internet to that area. Exactly. And so our interface is essentially that, that we provide bandwidth that, you know, we build all of the points to the point of providing bandwidth over this service region. 
And what we generally do, what we're currently doing at this time, is that the customers, these local ISP, you know, they go put dishes on people's roofs. When the wind blows it over, they take care of that. You know, us learning how to do that in many different countries and many different parts of the world is not terribly scalable. But building these spacecraft that can provide the service over them is much more scalable. So it's so then if you take all of these chunk of the service value ladder, it's a bit like, let's say, explain like how like AWS has like all the servers and everything you can build upon it and create your own thing. And then you guys are providing the whole infrastructure that other ISPs could use and build on top of you and provide the final service, the final leg, the service. Yeah, that's a very good, that's a very good metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Regarding timing, the fact that your spacecraft is it's, it's smaller means that you can make it faster as well, or the time frame is the same as the traditional ones. Yeah, we can build, we can make them much much faster. And you know, I'd say, you know, obviously building the first one has taken a little bit a little while, but you know, these next four are being built on a much shorter time frame than that. And well, by the time we get those things up, I'm sure it's going to be much shorter than any other geospacecraft that have been mm-hmm. built. And then there's so much more that we can do from that, like already work that we're doing for the next set of spacecraft to reduce the lead time of some of our critical long poles that we have in the system. And then a whole bunch of other stuff that we can do on our manufacturing process and things like that. So there's a lot of great sort of things that we can do, even from our first system, to further make that quite a bit shorter. And how guys plan to do like go to market how it works in this scenario like you're gonna have like a sales team to go after the isp like how it's all one sells a spacecraft (laughs) yeah i mean it's business to business sales which i guess at its core is probably not too different than what other b2b sales are the biggest challenge i would say for us is just that you know being a new company and needing to provide these high reliability systems that are going to work for a number of years requires a certain amount of proof point. So the biggest way that we've overcome that to date has actually been, it's sort of this interesting combination of different kind of proof points that we've used. So getting experts, getting advisors to sort of design review us, serve as our technical advisory board has been a big part of that. Getting our satellites insured itself has actually been a huge deal because not only did that allow us to be able to raise debt against the spacecraft, which was very big for our you know ability to raise debt in a, in addition to our equity that we've raised, but additionally, getting the satellites insured then serves as a proof point to customers because the satellite insurance companies are you know relatively conservative organizations and they do a lot of technical diligence on our designs. And then when you have another customer that does it, then you have more sort of proof by analogy of that. And what does it cover? Like it's covered like an explosion in the launch or cover the like the functioning of it for a specific amount of time? What's yeah. in that policy, let's say, of insurance? Yeah. So the launch plus one, which is a very standard insurance that one one gets when building and launching spacecraft, is what's called all perils, which means that it covers anything that happens. The rocket blows up, satellite just breaks whenever here for um, any sort of things. And so it's actually, yeah, it's a, it is for those of us who are used to, you know, I don't know, getting car insurance or whatever and having the car insurance company find any reason to get out of your claim, it's actually very different from that, which is great. Oh, yeah, it's good. 
good. And when you go around like talking with investors, recruiting, talking with people up your company, what is that people tend to get wrong the most or that people have like the most difficulty to understand or tend to, to misunderstand more frequently? Yeah. One question, or I guess one thing that is we've always, I think, come up with was conflating us with Starlink or other of the Leo constellations, which is interesting because we're sort of service, servicing a similar market, but we're actually not directly servicing the same market. And what I mean by that is that the price point that you can achieve from Geo is fundamentally just better than what you can achieve from a mega Leo constellation. Just sort of the the peakiness of demand around the world, the and therefore the number of spacecraft that you have to put up and all of that just means that you get better economics from Geo, but the latency is higher. And so the reality, though, is therefore that really we need, in order to connect the rest of the world in an adequate way, we need a combination of geo-provided service and Leo service. And so kind of that it's totally reasonable for people to not see that distinction from the initial get-go. But I think that's one of the biggest confusion points that people have. I would say even earlier in Astronus, one of the bigger confusion points was people just assuming that we were a Leo constellation. And you know, as we got a little bit more out yeah. there and got more collateral on our website and stuff like that, then we ceased to have as much of that um, confusion. But we still regularly need to explain to people, oh, what's the difference between what you're doing, what Starlink is doing it? And yeah. Yeah, I think there's a difference because the difference is it's both sides, right? There is like the technological difference and there's a business model type of difference as well, right? Because you are selling B2B and they are trying to go a little bit more straight to the customer. So it's the business model that's kind of different and the type of tech that you guys are building is different as well. Exactly. Yeah. And going into the company, what did surprise you the most? After starting the company, like what you didn't expect or surprised you after you started like this journey? Huh. Oh boy. So many different things. I mean, at the very beginning, I think some of the things that surprised me the most were just, you know, I had been at a small company before I started at Planet when it was 40, 50 people. I would say some, probably one of the things that surprised me the most was just how much support you have at other companies on just like processes that exist, people that are doing a thing, etc. And realizing how none of that is there now. And you have to go figure something out and just sort of get something working. And then we'll go and iterate from there when we go from that. And it's obvious, <laughs> but realizing to the extent of what all those things are and what you sort of need to put something in place for and all of that was probably one of the more like should have been obvious, but surprising when you sort of go through it in details at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And what have any advice or any tip for some someone that want to start a deep tech company? What would you give as an advice for a beginner? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is realizing what is the same and what is different about about a hard tech or deep tech company versus, you know, any other company. You know, a lot of the stuff is fundamentally the same. It's like, okay, when you go make a product and get it out there, make money from that product and get, you know, what's the minimalist version of that and go from there. But on the other hand, there's a number of things that are different. And some of those are, you know, what do you ultimately need in order to do that in terms of 
money, in terms of knowledge, in terms of team, in terms of things like that. One one advice that I think is a distinguisher is that there are certain companies where you know you have a memed thing of oh, you just drop out of college and go start your company and then you're going to be a billionaire like three years later. It's like, that's the story, right? Which even for not hard tech companies is actually incredibly rare, but just those are the ones you hear about. Yeah. But I think that bar is even harder for, well, <laughs> a hard tech yeah. company and yeah. that you just have a, a certain amount more of like, especially, I mean, you always need this when you're building anything, but especially as a new company, you need all the advantages that you can get. Because in the end, you know, it's all a gamble and you're just looking to get as much of an edge that you can on all these different things. And one of those best edges that you can get is learning from other people's mistakes and learning what worked before and all of that. Now, you need to think critically about that. And when does that rule make sense and when does it not make sense? And the best way you can get that is, oh, well, I worked at this previous company and I saw this or even better yet. We want to do it this way. I worked at the company that did it this way and the company that did it this way. And so now I can figure out how to be in the middle. So, yeah. So for me, you know, being able to have, having worked at Sierra Nevada Corporation, which is, you know, a bit more on the conservative, more conservative side in Planet, who was more on the aggressive side than how we were going to build things for Geo, was incredibly valuable for me. And so I would very much recommend getting a lot of that sort of experience for the set of co founders and also prioritizing that very much in your initial hires because you know ultimately those are going to be some of your biggest kind of ways that you can multiply out that effect and any gaps that you do have because you will have some is to find what advisors you have on that i mean we had a few different things that you know john and i didn't have and they we deemed those to be critical and so whether hiring people or whether finding contractors that we could get on contract and you know, even when money is super tight early on, being able to get somebody on contract and talk to them even a couple hours a month can be super valuable yeah. to help burn some of that stuff down. And like another thing that I get a lot when talking with people getting into deep tech and founders, it's like there's this difference in the traction meter when you look at a deep tech startup because it takes so long to have something actually to deliver the thing. So because of that, you have like this space of time that you need to find some proxy of traction or something. Like, how did you guys figure it out? Because you cannot just simply say, here's my MVP, my, my satellites on it, right? Not how it works, right? So how does like you guys want to do like some proxy of traction before having the actual launch and the actual satellite? For sure. Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, Astronus is now six and a half years old. And we're just about to deliver our MVP to Alaska here. And we certainly couldn't have been where we are today. We wouldn't exist without <laughs> some sort of proxies. Yeah, for us, the first main proxy was actually building a what we called first version of our demo satellite. So we're like, okay, putting a spacecraft in geo, that's hard. That's expensive. That's going to take a lot of work. Um, but what sort of system that we can do to sort of prove out some of our key technology and capability and honestly just prove that we as a small company as us as astronus can go and build and operate something like and work on a short time frame be very efficient with doing this thing with a small amount of money and so that's where we said okay let's build a 3u cubesat a 3u cubesat is a 10 by 10 by 30 centimeter spacecraft so much smaller than our cubic meter doesn't 
my hands, but so much smaller than our cubic meter spacecraft. And let's put that into low Earth orbit. And so we can do that with a, you know, much lower amount of money and still prove all of those things and also prove out some core technology that is traceable to what our software defined radio, a core component to our payload is going to have. And so at the, you know, very early on. Just one one thing I think is really interesting that I haven't thought about, like, there is a component of proving like something in plain English a little bit like, are these guys for real? Like they know how to actually build things or they're just bullshitting the yes. investors and things like that. So I think this is, yeah, this is key. This is key. And this is interesting because it's not a question most of the time when you look at the software companies because it's easier to know if they can build the software or not because if they were able to build the software, they were have built it, right? So if they are not capable, they will not, simple like that. But in terms of a thing like as complex and hard as you are doing or a biotech, it's not only the fact that you can build it because there's the resources, there's the time. It's just like, even if you know how to do it, you would require a lot of time and money to actually do the thing. So if you have like a smaller project that you could like the risk, kind of the risk, the team, let's say, right? Yeah, that's very much it. Because, you know, especially when you're raising, you know, when we did the first version of that demo satellite, it didn't go to space, the second version did. But even having that first version of it, because that when that was to raise our seed and at raising the seed ground, I mean, the main thing the investors are going on is the team and the vision. And, oh, wait, and, you know, some proof point is what you accomplished with that very small amount of money. And then going and raising the A was, you know, along similar to that, where we had now built the flight version of that demo satellite and it was ready to launch for there were launch delays so it hadn't launched yet but it was ready to go and so that was still a huge proof point for the team on what we're able to accomplish how much do you think that i i suppose that it was but that i want to this from you like the fact that you had previous actual experience in companies before how big it was that played a role in like raising the first round yeah, I think that was huge in the initial round, like in the seed round, and also so much also in the A. By the time we started getting further on, it was honestly more about the team we had built which yeah. and what we had accomplished and what our customer prospects were looking like and all of those sort of things. So it started to get a lot more well-rounded, but certainly both of our backgrounds were huge for the first funding round. And like, I think that this, like, this is a good idea for people who are thinking about joining, just joining a company first to see and to learn to have that little bit. It's, it's more important than in deep tech than it would be in, in other types of companies for sure. Like, because you have at least something on your belt to say that you participated in actually building something real in that area. Yeah. And regarding that, what do you guys look for when you think about hiring? Yeah. And actually, just to say one thing yeah. before that is that, yeah, I mean, I, it would have been so much harder for me to have started Astronus had I not been at planet first and you know or my experience at sierra nevada corporation but just sort of seeing those things done in a startup way and just the number of things i was able to go and touch and because of how my role was and how i acted at the company was i was very proactive to go and learn all the things because i knew my next step was to go start a company and you know i think that's critical for that kind of precursor step (laughs) and i can't imagine that there's a lot of like knowledge that can't learn otherwise like you can't learn exactly. in a book you can't learn in school you can't do a course you only learn 
in those specific companies that are doing that. There's no way around it, I think. This is make it even more valuable to be part of a company like that. So when you guys are looking for people, like what type of people you guys are looking for, like how, yeah. how does you hire and recruit, how it works? Yeah, so I would say the biggest sort of thing, which can be interpreted in many different ways, is finding people who've done hard and challenging things and had to make hard trade-offs is, I think, a really big part of it. Because, you know, ultimately, going and designing a thing like you do in school per a problem set, okay, well, there's an answer. You just have to go through the process, right? And so what makes something hard or what shows, what proves real capability is when you run into a challenge and you have to trade something off and then make that hard choice. And so that's one of the things we look for. Another one of the big things is is on just curiosity and interest in learning, not only about what your focus and what your specific discipline is, but around just like random other things too. And so that's been huge for us as well. And otherwise, you know, just making sure that we're finding people who are not only very technically capable, but also, you know, the right set of people to be on a team with and to be working together and going through these very difficult things and accomplishing things with that. Makes sense. And uh, we're going to the end now. And there's some two questions that I tend to make to everybody. So the first one is like, do you have any book recommendations for us or anything that inspired you or a thing that it's like a good reading for other people? I wouldn't say it probably makes me look bad to not have a good answer to that, but <laughs> I honestly don't have a great answer for like what's a good book to a good like Run, singular book. To, yeah. Running a startup like that requires all your brain. There's not a lot of time to read it, right? <laughs> yeah, but even to the point like, you know, I have gone off and searched for some of what are some of those different things, whether it's space, whether it's a startup, whether it's whatever. And I haven't found any particularly good, like, com comprehensive sort of things on that. Maybe it's just too hard to do. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And the last one is that if you are able to send, like, a message to everybody on Earth, just one message, what would it be? Oh, boy, there's a lot of pressure on that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if I just sort of go off of kind of some of the things that I guess I, I kind of coach to people on the team here and it'd be great to, to be able to share out people to people kind of more widely would be, you know, really just to kind of look at what are, what is it that you're particularly capable of yourself and what is it that you really enjoy doing? And, you know, that's what you should probably figure out. You should be figuring out how to double down on with, you know, whatever context of your life that you're doing it and figure out how to go and expand your skills, expand your capabilities, expand your network, expand your whatever. And, you know, that's how people go and accomplish the best things is by going and figuring out the best fit for all of that. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Like there's section between like what you're good at and what you want to pursue at the same time. This is a really sweet spot. Hard to find though. Like a lot of yeah. people tend to, to, it's hard to, to in, sometimes you need a lot of tries to get to yeah, this sweet it takes, spot. It takes a lot of experimentation to go find that out because, well, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's no way that yeah. you can necessarily know, which is, I Definitely guess, gets worth to the, it. Definitely worth it. Definitely. Try them. It's try worth the pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth pursuit. Yeah. 
Okay, thank you so much, Ryan. It's really fun. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's a great conversation, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.